Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based sciences. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. This is a great day. We are starting season number five. Five. You know, what's really interesting in our last episode, we talked about five a lot. We talked about the five koshas, the five senses, the five elements, and now we're moving into season five and maybe a new number. Uh, and eight, five and eight. What's eight and five? Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. 13. Yes. So 13 is three plus one is four. And I think that's angelic. Ooh. Let me see. Well, there's yeah, something let's look that up. in there. Let's see. The angels are with you. They send you the number four to reassure you that they've heard your prayers and are helping you. Let's look at 13 also, because why not? The ascended masters are with you, helping you maintain a positive outlook. The number 13 signifies that female ascended masters and goddesses are assisting you in staying positive. Ooh, well, we can yeah, use all baby. the goddess energy we that uh, <laughs> is surrounding us and feel all of the different archetypes and stages of feminism that we, uh, not feminism, of being female that we have gone through in our cycles. But we're taking, go ahead. I, I feel like we got to do five and eight also. We did four oh, and 13. Please, yes. We reduced them down. So five is a significant change is occurring, always for the better. It is a good idea to call upon heaven for help with life changes, whatever heaven means to you. And then eight, the number eight signifies abundance and prosperity. The endless loops in the number signify an infinite flow of money, time, ideas, or whatever else you require, especially for your life purpose. As we move into yoga, eight, the eight limbs, the eight, turn that eight on its side and you have that infinity symbol. That's the endless loop. Wow. And what a great symbol for practices that are practices of lifetime. Like these are lifetime study practices. We're not expected to master them, but to study, incorporate, and create harmonious environments in which to live with each other. So you said eight. that, and I, I, I started feeling like Snow White in the forest and the you know, the woodland creatures padding around softly in the soft earth and just had this <laughs> feeling to it. <laughs> it seems like we really cannot get away from having something to do with the forest in every episode. But the thing we don't talk about in the forest are the dangers in the forest. 
So, you know, we talk about it in this beautiful idyllic way. And one of the things that yoga, I think was kind of designed around and not so much to create a perfect experience of, of loveliness, of, but to be able to meet, we've talked about this, to be able to meet those harder, darker places so that when we end up getting lost in the forest or we end up, you know, meeting a shadow that is spooky or it's, it was Halloween yesterday, we were recording then too, that we have some tools to, to activate, to, to use through practice. And yoga is, I know, at least it is my origin story of these kinds of practices. And uh, maybe we'll get to those at some point, our different origin stories. Yes. Oh, I think our origin story is a really, really important place for us to introduce the Yoga 8 and how each of us and everyone listening, how did you come to yoga? Why is this a practice that you have brought into your life? And what are your benefits from it? So why don't we talk about uh, the statistics of yoga and uh, yeah, what it looks like? I, I think that's a good place to start. I think to kind of give a sense of the hard statistical facts that we've accrued at this point about this, this thing we call yoga that, you know, some people may equate it with their Lululemon pants or, you know, whatever they're doing. You know, there's, there's an image that we have of the yogi. And hopefully through all of our conversations, we can begin to dispel and dismantle this, this image of what yoga should look like, what it does look like, who is the who is the one who gets to transmit these practices. But so right now, this is from 26 Yoga Industry Statistics. I'm not going to go through all 26. By Abby McCain. This is from May 23rd, 2022. It was fact-checked. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. So if you want to see all of their source material, you can go in there. I'm not putting all their sources in there. I'm sourcing from them <laughs> and they've done all the work. So yoga has become one of the most popular fitness and mental health practices around the world. More than 28.75 million Americans practice yoga. The average American yoga practitioner spends about $1,080 a year on classes, workshops, and equipment. There are 40,582 yoga and Pilates studios in the United States. Over 300 million people around the world practice yoga. The global yoga industry is worth $37.46 billion as of 2019. So let's think about what it means when you're in a sort of a cash dependent, you know, this is a for-profit kind of thing taking, and, you know, we can look at different models of spirituality and how they've become monetized over the years and what the effect that may have on the actual receiving of these, who's transmitting, who's receiving. The average yoga practitioner in the United States spends $62,640 on yoga classes, workshops, and equipment over their lifetime. The global yoga industry is projected to be worth 60 6.23 billion by 2027. 54% of people said they started practicing yoga to release tension. You know, a lot of people, I've got this little graph here, 52% started because they wanted to become more physically and mentally strong, 43% to feel happier. So while many people start for the physical, and this is something we've heard and we've talked about, I know my origin story starts in the physical body. I think over the trajectory of yoga's popularization in the United States, I think more and more people are getting that it has other benefit. You know, I think in the beginning, it was so much more about the body and people kind of fell into the philosophy, fell into the, the more subtle benefits of yoga. But I think over time, especially as doctors and mental health practitioners 
have gotten on this bandwagon, they're, you know, offering it as a supplement to the other work that they're doing for mental health. And I'm just saying that out of my own head, because it just seems rational. It seems reasonable that that would be true. That did not come from this article. They said in 2012, a survey found that almost 60% of people who practiced yoga were motivated to exercise more than before they started yoga. So there's that other part that even in the physical, there's, and that's true for me. I was never an athlete. I was never interested in exercise. I, I was always fascinated by the elite athlete, you know, watching the Olympics and watching sport where people could do things with their bodies. But I always thought that's for someone else. That was never something I wanted for myself. And then a friend of mine, my friend Katrina said, Sherry, you've got to take Lippy's class. I was like, I do? What's a lippy and what class? <laughs> and I went in and I know we've talked about this before. This is maybe the fourth or fifth time in this podcast, but I went in and I was a fish out of water. I didn't know what to do with my body. I didn't know, I had absolutely no proprioception, no sense of where my body was in space, how my body worked. I didn't have that curiosity. And so I felt frustrated. I felt a little angry. I felt sore. I felt lost, lost in the woods, but I didn't know to take a seat then. So many things, everything was new and none of it was anything that I had considered before consciously. Over the years, I've noticed where seeds had been sown over my lifetime that made the trajectory into yoga absolutely poetic and what my path was meant to be all along. But so that's only to say that when I left that first class, put my hand on that doorknob and I thought, I don't know what the fuck just happened, but I, it was magical. And I'm not letting that bus leave the station without. Me. And so that became, but it also became an obsession at first, which is not what yoga is about. It's not about, you know, diving all in to the exclusion of everything else, which is for a time what that felt like. And then over time, I started learning a little bit more, you know, softening some of the edges of my habitual patterns and opening to new information, to being able to you know, so for example, I'm in triangle and Trikonasana in a class. Lippy comes over. She's like, everyone come over here. Let's look at Jerry. And I think I've said this before too. I had my hand on the ground. I had my other hand up in the air. My heart was open. I'm like, I'm doing this. I am performing this pose exactly the way it's meant to be. But her lesson wasn't about that. Her lesson was notice how Sherry is determined to touch the ground. So she's curving in on the underside of her torso. Notice and then she started pointing out all these things I was doing to achieve what I thought the pose was supposed to be. And it was nothing like I thought. So that was, I think, one of my, and then triangle became my nemesis for years until it became my heart song. And so that is part of the, the possibility of the transformation of yoga in a very small way, because that was started in the physical body. But then it just began to, to leak into the crevices of other places that I didn't even know existed. I love your lippy story. I love my you lippy story too. I, I do. I love that story of being encouraged to, because we never know where our encouragements are going to come, where are those little mm -hmm. tiny things that kind of lead us on a journey. We don't know where they're going to come from in our life and when that seed is dropped. But you had a friend who said, you have to take Lippy's class and look, 
that one little thing, what's a lippy and what should I do, has led to such a change, maybe change of direction. I'm not really sure where you were, so I don't want to speak for your after the because, but it, it offered a direction that you've been on that path for a long, long time. So one little yeah. word, you need, not well, one little sentence, not word. <laughs> you need to take Lippy's class and look what's grown out of that. Um, and I need to ask her too, why she felt that way. You know, I mean, it seems clear to me, but what did she see? What did she feel in our connection that gave her the data that would suggest that this was the thing that she needed to strong arm me into? And just while we're on the Lippy line here, for people on the East Coast in the New York area, it, she has a retreat center in upstate New York called Heathen Hill. Uh, check it out. I'm teasing that out because I, I want people to know about her. Um, what we do maybe later, if we choose to do something up there, then we'll we'll tease it out a little more then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> your yoga journey. Let me see. So my first yoga teacher, my first yoga class was in a community college in a room on the second floor with no windows. And honestly, I don't remember the teacher's name at all. But I do remember that I absolutely loved taking class from her, which just shows Teresa, I have such a hard time remembering names, uh, even those of people who had great influence on me. And what I really loved in studying with her is right from the beginning of my yoga journey, she didn't only speak about movement practice and asana. It was a really balanced class with meditation, which is interesting for the early 90s in a community college, but her background was so rich in, the, in yoga philosophy and in all of the different limbs and ways to express and practice yoga that my initial introduction had breath work and meditation and concentration and so many different parts of uh, all the different limbs of yoga were incorporated. And I studied with her for, oh, I'm going to say 18 months. I never missed class. It was just, I was so committed and it was so life-changing and it was an outlet. I had young sons and I needed something that was for me to do that was all mine. Yeah. And then she retired and she stopped teaching at the college and I was really upset. And this is, this is to say that I was so connected to the teacher that I couldn't see the forest for the trees, that mm -hmm. yoga became wrapped around my teacher. And after she retired, I just bounced around for a while, always comparing every class I went to, to, to her, comparing each teacher, which was really short-sighted on my part and a little unfair because I kind of closed myself to the future opportunities. So yoga kind of weaved in and out of my life at different times for about eight or nine years where I would keep trying and trying. And for whatever reason, I just never felt like I was in the right place at the right time. And um, I finally found a, a studio that I liked. It was in a barn. <laughs> Go figure. There's something about <laughs> barns. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's something about barns and farms that uh, are really appealing to me, but it was in a barn and I was hooked again. I just 
stepped right in and started right where I had left off as if my journey had never had that separation in it. And I began to realize that even though I felt like I wasn't in a class learning yoga, what I had learned had infused itself into my life. There were practices that I was still using every day. And because I wasn't in a class, in a studio, somehow I never really recognized them. And when we moved, I, I moved a lot. So finally, I wind up in Bucks County along this journey. And again, displaced from the yoga teachers that I loved. So one day, I mean, I was feeling awful. I was, I was depressed. I was sad. I don't even know what I was depressed and sad about, but I was. And I was like, I'm just going to get up and go for a drive in my car. I need to get up and out of the house and change what I'm doing to change, change location, change the mood. And I'm driving around. Bucks County is a beautiful county. So, you know, I figured ah, if I get out and I start to just separate myself from whatever it is that's tethering me here, something's going to change. And while I'm driving, I see a sign. And the sign says the Prancing Peacock Yoga Studio. Mm. And I was like, I wonder what this is. And if you've ever been there, they have the longest driveway. I turn in and I'm driving down this tree-lined driveway. And all of a sudden I can feel my breath change and I am starting to relax and, and thinking, oh my gosh, I think I'm in the wrong place. And at the end of the driveway, I can see a pond and this beautiful stone house. I love stone houses. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I just like made a wrong turn and pulled into somebody's driveway. And as I get there, I see that there's a building that says Prancing Peacock Yoga Studio. So I'm like, hmm, I'll just go see what this is all about. And I walked in and Larry Connor was at the desk. And I started talking to him and I was like, oh my gosh, by the time I left, he was so friendly and warm and engaging that by the time I left, I was registered for a class that night with a new, <laughs> with a new student package. And that's how my journey really continued again into something that was more formal uh, as a practice, that I had a home studio, I had so many amazing teachers to learn from. And again, going to the studio became just a part of my life. So it always seems that formal practice entered my life at times when I really needed it to. And uh, so it was at the Prancing Peacock that I met Liz. I did my yoga teacher training. I became a yoga anatomy teacher and springboarded right into, you know, going to Kripalu for my yoga therapy training. And, and the journey continues in so many different ways. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes we did that whole thing on filling in after the because, and sometimes I think we tend to fill in our own becauses after the fact. And I say, I say us, I mean me, like I've said it before that it's hard for me to remember sometimes what my state of mind was back then. What did I, what was I absorbing? What I, when you were talking, it reminded me because, you know, Cindy Lee, who is the proprietor of Om Yoga was in New York City. That's where Lippy taught class. And Cindy Lee was the first American to bring Buddhism, meditation and yoga together in a formal practice to transmit here. At least I think that's what she, she has said that. And I'm, I, if I'm saying it correctly. So Om and the Shambhala Center had a nice symbiotic relationship. And that's where I did my meditation training. Lippy 
did meditation and pranayama and did all of the the other aspects of yoga but i i and when i'm looking back i didn't honor that as the yoga part to me i think as i'm remembering i think it felt like these are the things i need to do before i get to do my yoga i need to do my chanting i need to do my breath work i need to you know whatever the things were that we were doing and that's where i also learned the dedication of merit at the end of every class we would say the dedication of merit so she did bring in all these limbs, but because I was at a certain place where it was an, it, it wasn't my thing, you know, I didn't really understand it. And I was there for the physical piece. I thought that I don't know that I even entertained that as part of my yoga practice. It was just part of what she offered. You know, it was just part of the game or part of the experience. And it wasn't until later as I kind of was going through, I got through the physical part, this asana piece when I started getting curious about the other aspects and recognize them as part of the wholeness of the practice. And I was, I was reading some of these things about, you know, yoga here in the West and how, you know, people who go out to India, it's not as popular there in the way that it's popular here. And I think I saw Cindy Lee was writing that there are only like a handful of studios that, that really still honor lineage yoga. And I have been, I have issues also with lineage language when we do that exclusively. So this is all really just, you know, I'm throwing everything into the big cauldron here. So the cauldron, we've added chocolate yoga, we've got beer yoga, we've got wine yoga, we've got goat yoga, we've got you know, all of these different things that we're throwing into the yoga cauldron that purists might have issue with and say, you know, having it like, this is not what yoga is about. This is not the thing. And then I, I, on the one hand, agree. And on the other hand, I think if yoga means to yoke and it's union, union, my question would be, what is not yoga? What, what falls outside the boundary of what we call yoga? So we talk about the formal practices, yes. And even those lineages have origin stories and they may not be what we think they are. And so I th my personal feeling is that consciousness is the thing that makes it yoga or not or you know we we live our lives i maybe it's also you know we're conscious about it we're you know doing the tenets of yoga we're practicing the yamas and the yamas the restraints and the observances and we're moving through all the different eight limbs which we will go through and at one point at some point it you know there are going to be times in our lives where teresa has said before she's just living her yoga you know that's just you know the practices in the living of it and so we tend to, I think, as humans, draw lines. Some are thicker lines. Don't cross this. If you cross this line, you are no longer in the realm of yoga. Or if you do this, then it's something other. And I'm guilty of that. I do that all the time. And in moments of clarity, I'm able to blur those lines. In moments of clarity, I can see my own progression where the yoga practice has leaked into more than just the crevices of curiosity, but into actual beingness in my own life. And that exists also when I realize I'm not practicing my yoga, when I'm sharp with someone or I'm the asshole. And then I can be like, oh, I can be the witness there too. So one of the, the things, one of the tenets, it's not really a tenet of yoga, but it's one of the things that we talk about in the philosophy is that enlightenment, which is the goal or not, whatever your goal is, is when the seer and the seen become one, you know, so at that point, where does consciousness live? And this is where I begin to spiral because do you really need it if you are one, if it's already, if the integrity is already there? So I don't know. These are questions. They're just, it's fodder. It's, you know, how do we, how do we have these conversations so that we can excavate, you know, our own truths?
you know, maybe there are some cosmic truths. Maybe there's some universal things that we can kind of draw together, which is what we're, we want to do. We want to take the individual and connect it to the collective. And so this is all part of that conversation. Yeah, you brought up the the samadhi, you know, the enlightenment or the oneness. And it reminded me of a story of an astronaut. His name is Edgar Mitchell. And I think, I think, sorry if I get this wrong, I think he was the eighth man to walk on the moon. And there's a story of that he shares about coming back to Earth. And he's in the capsule and he looks out and he can see the moon, the sun, the earth, and everything else, all of the ethers. And the way that I remember hearing the story is that it's at that point that he says he realized just how nothing was separate, that he could see the sun, the moon, the earth, and everything around it all at the same time and its connectivity. And if I remember correctly, he describes it as being in this moment of pure ecstasy and joy at this experience of the oneness and how everything is all is created. And he comes back, I mean, how everything is united and part of the collective, and there is this overarching oneness. And when he comes back to earth, he goes to find out what this was that he experienced. And I think he went to a university and I don't remember which one. And what they did was they referred him to the yoga texts and to this concept of gathering enlightenment and the oneness of all things and all beings. So little that is so astronaut funny. story. <laughs> well, I was, Trace and I both share the same uh, coach, Stacey Brass Russell. We've talked about her podcast, Passionate and Prosperous. She's having a live event, which is maybe passed by the time we, we get this out there. But she was talking in our session the other day about just that thing. And it's called the overview effect. I'm reading this off of, because I just was looking, I couldn't remember the name of it, the phenomenon of the perspective of astronauts in space. The overview effect is a cognitive shift reported by some astronauts while viewing the Earth from space. Researchers have characterized the effect as a state of awe with self-transcendent qualities precipitated by a particularly striking visual stimulus. So that, that awe, it's the awe, it's the, the thing that is so big that we can hardly contain it within the boundaries of our body. You know, we're out there in space. To imagine that kind of perspective is, is awe. So I remember I was, I think, in sixth grade, I was like 11, 12 years old when people started using the word awesome. Like I remember my cousins out in Minneapolis, <laughs> they were, everything was awesome. I remember not really like not gravitating to that as a filler word at the time. Now I say it probably as much as I say, well, so whatever. But so this, uh, uh, the awesome thing in Supernatural, if anyone out there watches the TV show Supernatural, when Dean gets transported back to Elliot Ness time and they're, you know, searching for Kronos, the time, the time uh, God, that he, uh, he uses the word awesome a couple of times. And it's anachronistic because He's back there, you know, 70 years before. And they're like, what fills you with such awe? What is it? Why does he say awesome so much? What is it that fills you with awe? And so we, we've become so desensitized to this, this idea of awe because everything is awesome. 
you know, oh, you 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 picked up that ball that rolled under the car. That's awesome. Good for you. Well, no, that's good for you. But is that truly awesome? And so when we can touch that, and I think in yoga, sometimes when we're in Shavasana, I will talk for myself. That is where I can touch the hem of awe, that there are moments, and I've only had a few in Shavasana that have been transcendent, that have been sort of out of body perspective experiences. I can't say that I've had it in the asana as much, sometimes in meditation, sometimes in breath work. But so we're going to get into, these are all the different limbs. All, we have eight limbs of this practice we call yoga. It's not just asana, the thing that we think about when we're looking at the cover of yoga journal. Well, since you introduced awe and awesome, I do you have to point. <laughs> oh, I introduced it. Yes, you I introduced it. You took us into space. So I do want to say that I do think it's awesome that we did not talk about that story at all before we started recording. And as soon as I mentioned it, you said, oh my gosh, our coach and I were just talking about this exact thing. So I'm in awe about how sometimes we're sharing the same brain <laughs> and yes. another symbol of we're all connected because that thought just came through the ethers and had touched both of us this week. So that is just a little aside that came to me while, <laughs> while you were speaking. And so I'll come back to the eight limbs now that I took a, a little walk off off to the off onto the wild side of uh, <laughs> of yoga. So yeah, you know, you talked about the statistics of yoga and how people come to yoga for all different motivations. A lot of them could possibly be the the body is a strong motivation because it's the most tangible part, right? When we talked about the koshas, anamaya kosha is the most tangible part that most of us have an awareness of because it's not as subtle maybe as some of the other koshas. So it's a good time to talk about the definition of the word asana, because if we came for our body, which I did, I started because I wanted to move. I wanted to feel my body. I wanted to become more flexible. I wanted to have some strength. It was my personal motivation. It wasn't until years later that I started to, and years later in study, that I realized that the word asana translated to seat. And you said it earlier when you were talking about your classes, you thought I had to do my breath work and you listed a number of things before I would get to do my yoga. And a lot of people have asked me, do you do yoga every day? And I have to ask, can you please explain to me what do yoga means? Are you asking me if I go to a studio and practice asana or go to my mat and practice asana every day? And that is often in Western culture, not always, how we describe what yoga is. It's our asana class. And I think it's so important for us to be in studios and with teachers to learn yoga. It's such an important part. But I equate it to the same thing as going to high school or college or, you know, being in study of. We go to the classroom to learn so that we can take what we have learned into our life. If it's in college, maybe it's taking what you learned into your profession. In yoga, 
maybe it's taking it just into our daily experiences. And when I look at the niyamas, for example, and we talk about, you know, whether we have time for yoga and how do we fit it in and how do we take it off the mat? You know, the first one is a practice of cleanliness. It is kind of simple to keep a practice of cleanliness in our life because we do it every day. We wash our dishes before we use them or, uh, well, not be yes, before <laughs> we use them after they've been used. We generally clean them before we're going to use them again. You know, we have some sort of bodily cleanliness, whether that's a shower or simply washing our hands as we come back into our house. So some of these parts, when we, when I really stepped back and looked at it, I was like, well, these are things I do every day, but yet they are part of the observances. Contentment is one, and sometimes I'm not so content. So that becomes a practice of realizing that I've stepped off my path of contentment. Yes. And, and sometimes we're not supposed to be content. Like, I just think sometimes we need to be in that sort of agitated place and accept that agitation. And I think that might actually be contentment when we can accept those more agitating things. But before we go much further, I want to define the yamas and the yamas, because those are the first two limbs of yoga. And each one, the yamas and the niyamas, each contain five, the magic five tenets. So the yamas, I'm going to read from this little tiny book, which if you're looking, it's called The Yamas and Niyamas, Exploring Yoga's Ethical Practice. And it is their ethical guidelines. What are the yamas and niyamas? The yamas and niyamas are foundational to all yogic thought. Yoga is a sophisticated system that extends far beyond doing yoga postures. That's what we've been, we've been saying. It is literally a way of living. Yoga is designed to bring you more and more awareness of not only your body, but also of your thoughts. The teachings are a practical step-by-step -step methodology that bring understanding to your experiences, while at the same time pointing the way to the next experience. They are like a detailed map telling you where you are and how you look for the next landmark. Mm -hmm. And I would say everything I just read makes me think of the koshas as well. There are five of them. They're designed to bring awareness. Where is the origin story of where we need to practice? So when we look at the eight limbs, like we look at the five koshas, we can better maybe understand where our suffering is originating so that we can directly attack it where it is. Attack it? Is that a yoga? Like, <laughs> yes, why not? All right. So they're like a... a they facilitate taking ownership of your life and directing it towards the fulfillment that you seek. So the yamas and the yamas may be thought of as guidelines, tenets, ethical disciplines, precepts, or restraints and observances. I often, she says, is it a shape? I think it is Deborah Adil. I often think of them as jewels because they are the rare gems of wisdom that give direction to a well-lived and joyful life. In yogic philosophy, these jewels sit at the first two limbs of the eightfold path. And that's what we're talking about, the eightfold path. So these are the yamas and the yamas. The yamas are the restraints, the things like nonviolence, ahimsa, do no harm, satya, which is truthfulness, speaking truth, non-falsehood. The third one is asteya, which is non-stealing. You know, don't take what is not offered or given freely. Um, brahmacharya, the fourth one is wise use of energy and including sexual energy, self-control, moderation. And then parigraha is the fifth one, which is non-possessiveness, non-accumulating. Don't take what is non-essential. I've seen it also as non-hoarding. The niyamas are the observances, the things we want to bring in, which Teresa beautifully talked about, saucha, that purity, the cleanliness, 
clearing of the mind, speech, and body. Um, Santosha, which is the contentment, that acceptance of others in one's circumstances, accepting things as they are. So when I read that, I was like, so sometimes things can fucking suck. And if we can accept it, if there's a sense of acceptance with the suckiness, there's also a bed of contentment. So it's when we resist or avoid the things as they are that we begin to, you know, move away from that contentment. It's just my, my feeling. Um, the third one is tapas, um, perseverance, discipline, patience. Fourth one is svadhyaya. We've talked about this one, self-study, going in, taking a look, a deep content, contemplative look in. And then the final one is the ishvara pradidana, ishvara pradidana, ishvara pranidana. Devotion, dedication to the ideal of pure awareness. That's your true self. That, you know, if we're going into the fifth kosha, that, you know, that bliss, that sense of, or you talked about samadhi, which is actually a limb. So we won't equate those two, but there is a sense, there's an energy, but those, those, all of those 10 things, those are the first two limbs of yoga. Yeah. And, you know, they are a lifetime practice. We're not expected to be perfect. But with this deeper awareness of how much of this is already a part of many lifestyles, what I've noticed, you know, when we talk about observances and moral disciplines, these concepts are not isolated to yoga. We've seen these before in so many other philosophies and or religions of ways to live a, a full and rich life in service of self and others. So when, when I look at them, I'm like, okay, uh, these are practices. And I like that we start right here with these observances because we often use time as an excuse of why we can't do things. And these are daily things that happen over and over and over again. When we give our awareness to them as a practice, that's when I can really begin to notice like, ugh. <laughs> yes. A question I'm... for you, because I know that you teach an ethics class. How do the yamas and the yamas, if, do you use those as a structure for the ethics or how do they kind of infiltrate your teaching of ethics if they do, or maybe they will in the future? Mm, maybe. Yes. Um, so they do. Let's just take ahimsa, nonviolence or nonviolence in thought as a concept that I would use in one of my ethics classes. I've always taught ethics with this statement to begin with. We're here to have an open dialogue of sharing of sharing ideas of things that we want to resolve. I do a lot of resolving of inner conflict. But our approach when we come into the class is not for me to change your mind. It's not for me. My, my reason for sharing is not to make you think the same way I think. We can share our information and listen, like speak from the heart, listen from the heart, be accepting to hear what others have to say. And in the end, maybe I will change my opinion a little bit. Maybe I'll stay with the same thought pattern and ideas that I have. Or maybe I'll be like, huh, I, wow. And I'll be blown away when somebody shares how they feel. But I approach the class with an energy of saying, really what we want to do is say, huh, I never really thought of it that way. And to open the lens in which we view something. And I find this as nonviolence in thought and words. 
I don't have to argue with you to convince you to believe what I believe, nor do I want to listen to you with that as the ear with which I'm listening to, listening with through. I want to be able to be, we're going to come back to the word, awed that there's another perspective that I haven't seen yet and that I have the option to explore it and either change the way I think a little bit, none at all, or completely refine because a whole path I hadn't thought about has opened before me. And that leads into this truthfulness, right? Speak from the heart, non-stealing. I don't have to grab your words and use them against you or anybody else. I just want to be able to listen with compassion and and use my energy uh, in the in a right use of energy to be accepting, to be open, to be willing to hear, but not approach it from a place that is a judgmental place, but to yeah. give you the space, to give me the space for us to share ideas and and maybe become more enlightened on whatever subject we happen to be talking about. We've talked about the universe, hearing things only sort of in the positive statements. And we've looked at the yamas and the yamas, and, and often they're written in a negative, like non-stealing, non-hoarding, you know, non-falsehood, kind of like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, all of the things we shall not. Yes. I actually, after we had that first conversation about it, I rewrote the Ten Commandments only in the positive. You know, only use what's yours, you know, honor things rather than don't do this. And so I look at these and I think how not only does it add another level of introspection and looking at it, but taking the concepts and turning them around and seeing them for how they're offered and seeing how we can change if the language changes, how we our interaction with the language changes. So if you know, thou shalt not is the tradition of your origin story of, of spirituality, then you may want to hold on to that. That may be something that, that is meaningful to you. And I'm not here to say, oh, well, the universe isn't going to hear it like that because, you know, hey, man, fucking God wrote the Ten Commandments, so I wouldn't <laughs> mind to say he's wrong. But it's only to say that we are all sort of born into different traditions that are, and I've always said it, all paths to the same place. I'm a Krishna Hindu Buddha Jew. Like it just, and I'm sure there are many more that I can add into that. And one day I'll have all of the religions and all of the spiritual practices in one long name because it is all paths to the same place, but we hear things differently. And we've talked about this even in terms of teaching that if your students aren't getting it, find another way to say it. That, you know, I remember when I first started in the meditation training at, at the Shambhala Center that one of the students there left in the middle because she was raised you know with with Jesus as the middleman so to speak and because the practice we were doing didn't include that kind of deity that kind of place to to direct our devotion it was really hard for her to stay in that in that paradigm years later she came back and it's it's a different story now but it's interesting how we begin to dismantle or build our our spiritual stories and you talked about, you know, having the different times of bringing yoga into your life and there were separate spaces in between and that it didn't feel like it once you returned. That I know I think I've said this before too. That's going to be the, oh, I've said this before. But I went to NYU for acting and this was in 1986. And my teacher, Pat Mullen, she was awesome. 
she would teach us. She taught us cobra. She taught us plow. She taught us different asanas, but not as yoga. She never once mentioned the word yoga. Never. And it wasn't until I started practicing formal yoga that I realized that's what she was offering. But it was all in service of opening up our voice. She was a voice teacher, not a singing teacher, a voice teacher who was helping us to open up our instruments so that when we were on stage, we would have the fullest potential for, you know, elocution or whatever we needed to do from their volume and all of that. So plow, you know, sort of draws your chin in when you're there. That's Vishuddha. This is your throat chakra. But in the same way as it's kind of locked in, there's an opening. In cobra, we're opening the throat. We're opening the, you know, the front of the, the, the chest. So this is all kind of, it, it's the opposite effect in a way, but it's in service of wholeness. And so looking back and seeing those little seeds planted, I'm sure she did other things, but I just think of how we did Shavasana. But she taught Shavasana different than any other teacher I've ever had. She had us cross our arms in front and we bent our knees. We're now in what I would call constructive rest. That is the, the shape of constructive rest. But she called it Shavasana and she said it's called corpse pose because when you're in this position, if you're dead, it, you'll, you can still stay in it. It's not going to move. Like you can position a dead body this way and it will stay. And that's what I remember. I don't know if that's true. I don't know where she heard that. But that's part of my lineage of, of yoga. It sort of feeds into the whole sort of, and I became the Tibetan Buddhist, you know, kind of stuff. And then there was so many other voices coming in to, uh, you know, some Hindu voices. And, and of course, the American, I'll say appropriation, the American sort of creating it within our own reflection. Because what else can we do with it? And speaking of lineages and yoga and all of its different transformations and all of the different people that you have studied with, we've heard about Lippy. Now we have somebody who was sharing seeds of yoga with you without really calling them for the purpose of voice expansion. And she found that these particular shapes had an advantage to be practiced to, for that volume, for that execution, she did use the word shavasana, which kind of linked it to yoga, but it wasn't the purpose of her using it. It wasn't that mm -hmm. I'm going to go to and that I want to teach you what I would teach you in a yoga studio. She brought specific asana that you described work coming into cobra and plow and different shapes because she had a benefit that she could share with you that was directly applicable to the voice class. So there were seeds of the practices in something that was taking them off the mat and being able to use these shapes part of a lineage and in a different type of teaching in a way to help with voice expansion. And then when you were speaking of that, it reminded me of our pranayama classes, our breath control, and how many different ways breathing can enhance so many different ways, so many different aspects of our life. For instance, opening up our lungs and our rib cage for voice to create this space. I mean, think of singers, how much breath control comes into you weren't in a voice singing class, just a, a different type of voice class you shared with us, that breath and postures were introduced in order to expand your use of your voice. 
And now my breathing practice helps me soothe my heart because I have high blood pressure. And when I feel the tightness, now pranayama is a part of my daily practice, just the equal breathing. And it's not about retention. And I know that, I'm again, I said this, I know enough about certain things to kill us all. And I know when it comes to pranayama, I would want a teacher. That's not something I would want to learn from a book. It's not something I would necessarily want to even learn from a, a YouTube video. It's something that I think is so potentially beneficial, but also potentially dangerous. I mean, we breathe naturally, so that's that's going to happen, whether we're breathing shallow or we're breathing deep or whatever we're breathing. But when we begin to manipulate our breath, I think that there are potential pitfalls that we think, oh, you know, this is something our body just does for us. But we also get to direct it. And that's part of, you know, it's one of the few autonomic systems that we can also make, you know, have, make it purposeful. And so, and I know from people I know who've studied pranayama that, you know, there are certain techniques that when we do superficially in class for like a few breaths, that when done as a practice, as a whole practice, can make, give headaches. It can make you nauseated. It can bring up other things in your physical body that without the right guide could lead to other things. We know our bodies hold stories. We know that it holds, you know, whatever stressors. And so I think that it, it, because of the proliferation of teaching on different platforms, the digital platforms, it, I just want to be a voice to say that if you have a chance to have a real teacher, even if that teacher's on Zoom, the teacher is there with you getting to know you and being a part of your experience, I would suggest that you do that. I mean, there are other things that, you know, basic sun salutations. I don't think you're going to hurt yourself. Legs up the wall, you're not going to hurt yourself. But for some of these, I think that if you want to go below the level of the surface, having a teacher is really important. And I don't mean necessarily a guru. I'm a buffet girl. I like to, you know, sample the different voices. And I also think there's value in having a teacher if you find the right teacher who is, you know, operating from good faith, who has, is further down the path than you are. There are, you can go online and look at, you know, different credentials that people look to for, for the right teacher. And I think that that's really super important. I want to just speak to that because there is so much, there are so many teachers on Zoom, on you, not on Zoom, I'm sorry, on YouTube and different virtual teachings. And not to judge anyone or even the collective, but it is a good idea to vet your teachers and to find when you're choosing somebody to be that guide, whether it's for a short period of time or as that consistent teacher, to know what their backgrounds are and to be able to discern in looking at all of these resources that are available, who it is that you want to study with and why you're choosing right. to be with that particular teacher slash guide. So I really like that you shared that. And uh, I just was really excited that you used the autonomic nervous system, because one of the things that I do love about a pranayama practice is that Breathing is the only part of the autonomic nervous system that we can take control over. We don't take control over our digestion or many other, the other parts of the autonomic nervous system, but our breath, we can, we can make those choices and with the right teacher and the right guide to, and a clear intention of how you want to affect those other systems that would influence and lead to the choice of which breath practice you're going to incorporate at any given time. Like what you said, for instance, is that some of them are practices we wouldn't use if we have high blood pressure. 
But when we know that the breath is our friend and it's our guide, our breath often is a signal to things that maybe I am unaware of at the time. For instance, if I am frustrated, if I'm paying attention to my breath, I begin to notice that its pace and its depth may have changed. See, I believe that we have many different breath patterns. And when we watch our breath patterns and we form a friendship with those breath patterns, they are linked to what emotion that I'm feeling at that time. If I'm really excited and I'm telling Sherry the story and I'm sharing it with you and I'm really excited, I feel my breath change with the volume of my voice. And I noticed, I was like, whoa, that is the breath of excitement. But if I'm really angry, I could also feel that my voice is going to rise and my breath is going to become a little bit more labored. But I have been working with uh, building a relationship with my breath in an effort to gain a deeper understanding of the emotional state that I'm in at that time. And knowing- The fact that you can do that is amazing because when I'm in the middle of an acute experience emotion, I'm not looking at my breath. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. I'm not doing it. I'm I'm, I might afterwards be like, what the fuck just happened? But if I'm really excited about something, that's why the meditation thing of recognizing when the breath has wandered or your mind has wandered from the yes. breath, that that's why for me, that's the curiosity. It's not about anything else right now in this snapshot in time in my meditation practice than recognizing when my mind has wandered because in real life, off my cushion, as I'm, I'm blending that into my, my life, I get to then say, oh, I I have an opportunity here. I've noticed I have wandered from my center. I have wandered from my alignment. I have wandered from the person that I want to be in the world. I have wandered from whatever it is that is operating at a lower vibration or at the highest vibration that it's these extremes, but it's these, these emotional bursts of whatever. I'm usually so in it that I'm not witnessing it at the same time. So it's hard, like that's a practice that I would like to be. I think that's a highly evolved practice. And the fact that you do that, I think is fucking awesome. Well, I can say that it is a practice. So I'm going going to make it clear that it's a practice. And I like to think that I would do it all the time, but that is not so. But with this practice, I have begun to notice when I'm shifting. And on occasion, I'm able to then redirect the way I might approach a specific situation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have to remind myself after that I witness in the mirror of what I just happened and say, hmm, I missed, I missed that one. But that's why we have all of these amazing practices to take off the mat. Like you said, noticing when the breath wanders and bringing it back. You've taught me that practice as well. When I really began sitting with you in your mindfulness meditation. I had been a meditation practitioner for some time, but there was something about the way that you gave the instruction. It was it was simple, it was direct. I had heard it before going back to, if your students aren't hearing it, change the way that you're sharing it. And we like to hear from different voices. Mm-hmm. There was something in the instruction in your mindfulness meditation that was so simple and direct that I was like, Oh, and I want to say this about that because it is, it is a lineage. It is a direct lineage. And so when I was given the instruction, it was very clear. 
it wasn't really open necessarily to interpretation. You know, you take your seat, you place your mind on your breath. When you notice your mind is wandered, you label your thought thinking, return to your breath. It is like a mantra. It is so easy to, you can certainly extrapolate from that. You can add nuances, add a little salt, a little, you know, paprika, a little turmeric, whatever you're adding to it to give it your personality. But the instructions are clear, they're concise. And one of the things that when I did my training at the Tibet house, it was Shambhala, it was the Tibet house, but David Nickturn, he was saying, we, we want to do these trainings so that when people say that they're going to take a mindfulness or they're doing mindfulness, they know what they're doing. There's some consistency. There's some definition around it. And again, like this is a conversation we could have. If it's so overly defined, then, then what happens? Like if we're so rigid, but I think there's enough space, there's enough ether in the practice, in the instruction to be able to, to sit with it, to, to, to have those nuances, to have the opportunity to expand and contract as necessary. Yeah, it seems like our conversation was led into the practice of dharana, another one of the eight limbs, to hold focus and attention on a single point, to be able to notice when the mind wanders so we can return to the practice of a single point of focus. And often that single point of focus is the breath connecting the two practices. Because our breath is our constant companion, it's something that we're doing in each and every moment that we're alive, that using it is sometimes the introduction to that focus. When your mind wanders, bring it back to the breath. So we take our eight limbs and continue to expand and add to the practices that we use both on and off the mat. We skipped one between pranayama and dharana, which is the pratyahara, the withdrawal of the senses. And I'm going to read off of here, withdraw from the external stimuli and look at our internal self, because this is one that I've always Kind of, I hear it, I hear withdrawal from the senses. I kind of think of a sensory deprivation tank in my head and something I really want to try. But I, I, I need a teacher. I still need a teacher for these, these eight limbs. <laughs> it is a lifelong thing. But here it says, finding an inward focus. It's very beneficial during challenges to have almost like that spot that we can, um, we call in yoga, drishti, in yoga, in asana, we call it a drishti, a place where we can focus our attention when we're in a balance or something. So maybe pratyahara has something to do with an internal drishti, something that we can focus on that it will be benefit that's an anchor during challenges. Observing habits in that may that may not be serving us. So we've talked about this too. You go to an asana class, the first thing is everyone take a seat, let go of what doesn't what doesn't serve you. Well, unless we've done the work to determine what those things are, it may just be, you know, I don't like pancakes anymore. Like I don't know, whatever that is. That's not it. Uh, not allowing external distractions to become who we are. Oh my God, within a yoga class, but also in life, not allowing other people's ideas of who they think we are to determine who we think we are, you know, may be part of that. Uh, many times we cannot control the chaos that can arise, but we can focus on who we would like to be in these experiences. That sentence resonates very deeply with me in, in relationship to Pratyahara, that this is what the whole practice all of it kind of is for me. It's this opportunity to find that internal place that gives me the steadiness so that I can operate in this crazy chaotic world. I don't know if you guys have heard Ani DeFranco. Amazing. You got to go, go go to Spotify, iTunes, Ani, A-N-I, DeFranco, D-I, Franco. 
she's amazing, but she sings a song called Buildings and Bridges and how buildings and bridges are made to bend in the wind to withstand the world. It's what it takes. And so like in order to have this fluidity, it always comes down to Stira and Suka for me, this, which is really one of maybe one or two mentions of asana in the yoga sutras, in Pantanjali's yoga sutras. There are, it's not about us. It's all, it's the first codification of yoga. And it only, to the, what it says about asana is that it should be a balance between effort and ease, that there should be this sense of um, stira and sukha balance. So if that gives you an indi indication of the weightiness of asana within the whole eight-limbed practice of yoga from the beginning, that should give you a sense that it's not the most important thing. So to have this within pratyahara, this sense of stira and sukha, but it's more this, for me, it's stira because I live a very sukha life. It's, you know, kind of testing boundaries and this ease of flow. So I just, that that's an interesting one. So we've gone through the yamas, the niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, and dharana. That's six of the eight. Yes. And then we have dhyana, which is absorption, like to transfix the mind. So in dharana, we're teaching ourselves to have the single point of focus so that when the mind wanders, we can bring it back to the breath. We can bring it back to what we're using as that single point of, of focus. And that, for me, takes a lot of training and a lot of work. Some days my mind is just no matter my whole entire seat is reminding myself to come back to my breath. And so that is the practice. I think that sometimes in the beginning, I just thought I was doing it wrong because I had to remind myself so many times, come back to your breath, your mind is wandering. But that is the practice. It's the training to be able to focus on a single point of awareness. And in the times that I feel like I, I've really mastered that, it can be in one seat, it can be over a point of time because it's fluctuating, it's a practice. But when I have those days where I really feel like my, in, my focus on that single point is strong, then I become transfixed. Then I have this absorption where I really feel like I'm meditating. And I, I can say that a fire has helped me to do that. There are nights where I'm out and I love to be out in the night around a campfire, you know, especially on a cool evening, wrapped up in my blanket, staring at the flames, dancing, and become transfixed in such a way that time seems to pass without my knowing it. And it's when I come and then all of a sudden I'm distracted away from the fire that I realize just how transfixed I was. And I believe that my practice of noticing when I wander and the single point of focus is the thing that has prepared me to be able to experience this absorption. And I'm going to say meditation, this just being so in the moment that my brain is quiet and my awareness is, it returns. I, I feel like it returns. Like I almost... When I'm in this state, I'm not thinking. It's when it returns that I notice that I was there, if that makes sense. It does. I'm looking at, at this, this thing that we're, we're um, this article. 
And one of the things it says at the end, it says for Diana that embracing a calm state without needing it to be stillness. I, 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 it sounds like what you were saying was that the absorption of the moment was so full that you weren't really noticing it until after it was over, which in some way is, is not being present. In some way, it's being so present that we're not present because you didn't recognize it until after the fact. So I wonder about this. One of the things it says, meditation, concentrating not only on one thing, but all encompassing. So if everything is encompassed, if everything is being absorbed, if concentration deepens to a point where the subject and the object dissolve, which is, I, thought, I saw that and I thought that was very interesting that this should precede samadhi, where the, where the seer and the seen become one, that that is such a, a full present moment that I, I don't think I've ever been there. So I don't, I can't really speak to it fully. If I have been there, I'm not accessing that memory right now. I feel like there probably were times when I glimpsed it, but it was so fleeting that it was just an opportunity to know that it's real and I, sh I could practice it more. But I, I can't get to a place where I can imagine like, what is the memory? I've, I've looked at fire. I've had out of body experiences. I've had many different types of things like that. But Diana, it, it feels like this is something I'm still kind of, I'm practicing toward. I, I don't know that I have anything to, to offer that, except that, that I found it interesting that that concentration deepens to a point where subject and object dissolve, which it sounds like you said you did with the fire, you dissolved right into the fire, but that that should precede samadhi, which is the eighth limb, a state of ecstasy, connection to divine and all living things. So if Diana precedes that, and I do believe that they are ordered purposefully, that that is the prerequisite to be able to become one with all things, is that, is that dissolution, that dissolving, being able to, to see myself in the tree, to be able to see myself in the lamp, to be able to not only see mm. that it is myself, but that it is no longer myself, that I am the lamp, I am the tree. I feel like there's some language there that I'm still kind of playing with that is outside academia. So because it's so experiential, it's hard to kind of, for me to, to find the right words. <laughs> if it's academic, yeah. I'm good. I'm right in there. But this experiential thing, there's so much I have yet to experience that I can be a teacher to people who, who uh, on the path where I'm further along the path than they are. But, you know, because there are eight limbs and I, we talk about teachers being further down the path. What if I'm further down the path in the meditation and the pranayama, but in the asana, not so much. You know, I've had students come in who are above and beyond, like be so leaving me in the dust of asana, you know, that it's, I end up saying, okay, so how would you, let's use you as a model as we're doing this, or how would you explain your experience? But because, you know, after 23 years of practice, you know, I, I am I, like, for example, here I am not finishing my sentence again, but when I did my teacher training, which was at the Prancing Peacock. It was wonderful. And it was that experience going down that driveway still like the, the release of, of whatever was, was tight. And that became a yoga home. It didn't exist when I moved here 20 years ago. It's, it came in after that. But one day Liz said, I'd been going every day. And she was like, have you ever considered doing the teacher training? And I literally turned around. I was like, she had to be talking to someone behind me. I uh, taught there for 10 years, lots of classes, lots of workshops, lots of trainings in my teacher training group. I had already been practicing for 10 plus years by the time I entered this training that I did not believe I deserved to be in. My back went out. We talked all about that. And yet there were people in the group who had started practicing yoga two weeks before entering the training. They were in that 
that high of discovering yoga. And I think that's great. And they could perform the asanas way better than I could. A lot of them were gymnasts or dancers and could, could do the, perform the asanas. But as far as yoga, I mean, I, I think that the eight limbs, 10 years gives me a little bit of, of a head start in some of these discoveries. And that is all. Certainly some of them may have passed me along the way, like the rabbit and the hare. I was maybe going fast and they're slowing down, whatever. And it's not a comparison. It's not a compare and despair, but it's understanding that there are many different ways of, of furthering the practice of, of finding a teacher of, you know, blending our, our experiences to create something magical that is not supernatural, by the way. <laughs> Could be. Make it. I think you did a beautiful job of talking about how many different entry points there are to yoga. And obviously we're not entering in samadhi, like full enlightenment, or maybe somebody mm -hmm. is, I'm, who am I to judge? Maybe yeah. somebody has this amazing experience like Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut did when he looked down and saw the oneness and that was his motivation. I think that's probably the exception rather than the rule, but you know, who am I? I, I? I don't know what people's motivations are, but there are so many different entry points. For instance, in a yoga therapy training, there was an internship and the internship took the yoga therapists as part of their training into the hospital to, you know, sit with people and share their practices. And one of the things that came out of it and the, and the way they stepped in was through breath. The entry point there was pranayama because the statement that I heard was everybody can, everybody breathes. So no matter what condition you're in, um, whether you're sick or completely healthy, whatever you're doing, breath is an entry point that we all have access to. And I think that, you know, often maybe we're called because our body wants to move and it's asana, but there are many, many entry points in these eight limbs. Uh, so if one speaks to me or you in a specific way, it is an entry point. We don't have a specific, uh, yes, I think they're ordered from accessibility to- I don't know if you know, it's accessibility. That's not what I meant when I said ordered. I think they're ordered in a, in a, in a wise way. I think that we- we start with what we see. It's not necessarily, it could be accessibility. I don't know, but I think that there's a logic to the order, not necessarily because someone might be more able to access the meditation than the asana to begin with. So I don't know. That's a very personal way, which is the more accessible, but I think it's logically ordered. And we start yeah, and with the gross and go into the subtle. Yeah, I find that in the writing of how I have been taught the eight limbs and that asana is pretty much at, it comes right after the yamas and the niyamas most times that I see it. However, asana has changed. So it's in a place, but we are reminded that Patanjali said it's a steady, comfortable seat. And we have expanded that to have many, many, many more poses that fit in to, under the title of asana. So, you know, we mentioned meditation. Maybe it is asana, the steady seat, right to a meditation and concentration practice. Uh, whatever it is, there's a place for everybody to mm -hmm. step in or simply to notice. Maybe when you're listening to us speak and you're like, well, I'm not a yogi. 
Um, I don't practice yoga, but yet there's a familiarity with some of these definitions. And you're like, oh, but that is a practice that I already have as part of my life. And I think that is the taking the yoga off the mat. It's a, I personally feel it's a lifestyle. And this is, you know, this, these practices, these studies that I have made a part of my life are to help me live a more full, rich life with awareness of how I'm showing up. When you were talking before about the breath and in the hospital setting, when I'd have, I've had a couple of abdominal surgeries and during, after one of them, one of the teachers at the Peacock, June Miller, she said to me, if you can breathe, you can do yoga. And while I was convalescing, I would watch asana on video and I would breathe with them as they were moving. And that's all I did. That was my pranayama. But that's not a, that's not a, a practice that is offered. Like, I, I don't think you go into light on pranayama and see breathe with other people while they're doing asana. But you should get light on pranayama, light on yoga. They're all Iyengar. Uh, yes. But anyway, so that's to say that if you can breathe, you can do it. And, you know, for some people, even just saying the word yoga is going to be a distancing thing. So it doesn't really matter what we call it. I think is basically what we're saying is that semantics are semantics, um, but the, the actual substance of what we're talking about is accessible and actually a part of all of our lives already, as you suggested. So, you know, we're just, we're talking through a yogic lens because we're yoga teachers, Yeah, you know? And so that's, that's how we're transmitting the information, but how you receive it is how you receive it and how you interpret it or apply it is exactly what you're meant to do. Yeah. Uh, so going back to when we started, we talked about the woods and you said, yeah, we haven't talked about getting lost in the woods or, you know, the scary things that are in the woods. And that reminded me and maybe to bring us full circle as a way to have yoga off the mat or have practices that are off the mat when we come to those places of scariness. Now, the first thing is be aware right? Is this scariness something I have to run from? Maybe being lost, you don't have to get up and run, but really, really gather your senses. And maybe that's a, a an invitation to stop and pause. So the first thing is awareness. Am I in a dangerous situation that requires immediate, right. I got to get out of this forest? Or is it an opportunity this is one of the things that was shared in my training. Is it an opportunity to incorporate your practices, to stop? So the uh, acronym that they used was RFWA, as how can we approach this? And it is breathe, stop and notice. And I, first, the awareness, I am safe, but I am lost and I'm stressed out and I'm feeling <laughs> like something is uh, you know, like I'm really anxious about being lost. So bringing it off the mat, can you take a pause and just breathe for a minute, gather your senses and be like, okay, I'm lost. Let me calm down so that I can make good, clear choices. Cause we don't make clear choices. If we're scared, we're like, you and I were a little bit lost the other day and we were like, fight, flight, or freeze, baby, fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. The next is to relax. Notice where you're holding tension in your body. Like, okay, if I can relax in this situation of stress, I can move forward and beyond it. Then it's feel, feel into what my experience is. Yeah, that was a scary thing, but is it really scary? Is it threatening? Or am I just like, okay, let me feel into my body and find some clarity. Then it's watch. 
observe without judgment what's going on around me. And you're kind of taking stock of looking around and evaluating and comparing and saying, okay, have I, have I ever been in this situation before? Maybe you have, and that's going to help to give you the information that you need to say, oh yeah, this has happened before and this is how I handle that. So we start to watch and notice and then allow. Can you allow the experience to unfold, surrender and say, yep, yeah, I'm lost. And then sit down with your resources and come up with a, a way of taking that next step with intention and awareness. Sounds like all of those things for some people who have been practicing off the mat doing this work that because it says you know, observe without judgment, that's a practice in and of itself. How do we do that? How do we how do we look at things without judging them? I mean, taking that alone could be a lifetime practice. But for some people, it all of those things could happen instantaneously. Exactly. You know, it's part of the experience of, you know, the ignition times and how how they they shorten. So June Miller used again, I'm June, I don't know why she keeps coming up, but she used to say, There's the fear that keeps you from living and the fear that keeps you from dying. Know the difference. And that's discernment. Everything you just said is about discernment. And that's what we teach. That's what we that's what we're practicing is discernment, whatever we call it, whatever the other threads are that give it a different feeling or a different, you know, flavor, it's all discernment at the end. Yeah. And that's why we practice. Depending on the situation, I imagine it could take some time to get through all of those steps. But in other situations, you know, with practice, then it's like okay, let me notice what's going on. And, you know, if you're somewhere where you know you're really not in danger, I would imagine those steps are going to begin to accelerate. Like, oh, I've been here before. But yeah, practice, practice, practice. And it's like noticing when your mind wanders. There's a lot in that list to do. Some of them may be, we talked about this in another episode, instinctive. It may just be part of our instinct to 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 just become aware. To If you've been in the woods a lot, I don't know if you ever watched Survivor Man. But he's amazing. He just goes out to these places and and survives for on nothing. But it's, you know, now someone like him in that moment, none of that would even be conscious. It would just be a part of the behavioral patterns that he has been working on for a long time. But for those of us who are new to the woods, it may be that we're in our sympathetic nervous system and that wouldn't even occur to us to stop because we're too scared or we're too nervous or we're too lost that that even doing anything but wandering or turning in circles would be like, I don't even know what else to do. But for someone who is mindful and you say awareness, consciousness, whatever the word is, then we get to do that. But we have to know first that we get to do that. And many of us don't when we're in the situation. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I want to make a, add a little level of clarity here. We keep talking about being in the woods, but these techniques can be used anywhere. Imagine yeah. like, I like to go and walk around in the city and sometimes I'm not really all that great because I'll start wandering off and looking at things that are really exciting and I don't know my way around so well. So all of a sudden I'll be like, well, where am I? And like, where do I need to go to get back to the train or, any, or, or where's the restaurant or what street did I even wander onto? You know, I can get distracted by looking around at, at all of the beautiful things in in any environment and find myself in a situation where I'm like, oh, I'm lost in a sea of people. <laughs> and, and we could take it another level and say, get lost in thought. It mm -hmm. doesn't even have to be in an external landscape. It could be in our internal landscapes. 
I had a teacher who once said, I would never, my, my mind is a neighborhood I wouldn't want to wander in after dark. You know, that it's that kind of thing that, yes, we can get lost in a physical space, but what happens when we spiral out into flights of fancy or, you know, an illusion or some delusional thing that we've all been there, you know, something that hasn't happened that we want, that we've just attached ourselves to, you know, that there's so many ways to practice off the mat that aren't of a physical nature or even in a physical landscape. So all that is to wrap up. After the, three hours of talk, this is our longest discussion, I think. So after, after all of that, yoga eight off the mat. There are so many ways to practice and so many inroads that you might've guessed by now. Season five is yoga eight. Until next time. <laughs> Check you later. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.